Charlie Jane, do you have a favorite kitchen gadget in your house? You know, uh, my dishwasher. I was just thinking the other day about like the fact that for years, for most of my adult life, I lived in houses that did not have dishwashers. And then right. I moved to the apartment I'm in now, which has a dishwasher. And it was like, oh, my God, I no longer have to wash all my dishes by hand, which I had been doing forever. And it was just like, oh, my God, this is literally transforming my life. And I feel like every time I use that dishwasher, I kind of feel just this sense of like my life has been improved by technology that I don't get from a lot of other technology lately. So, Annalie, how about you? Well, for me, it's definitely my espresso maker because that's the first thing I turn on in the morning. It's like what gets me out of bed. Um, and I also like the fact that it is it is electrified, but it's steam technology. So it feels like it's kind of, you know, a 19th century thing, but also a 20th century thing. It's very delightful. Plus, I just freaking love espresso. And I personally benefit regularly from your espresso maker. Like it makes me <laughs> so true. happy that you have it. I'm going to say, yeah. I always make it for you in the morning. And that's, I don't know, it's fun to start out the day as a barista. But it's funny because when I was thinking about kitchen gadgets, it really made me realize sort of what you were saying about your dishwasher, which is how freaking dependent I am on like my fridge, my toaster, like electric lights, washing machine. You know, it's just weird to think about how all that stuff, which I completely take for granted, is really, really recent. Like my great-grandmother, Zadie Lee Ray, she was born in 1889, which is before pretty much any houses were electrified, which means that she and her mom would have been like hand-washing clothes and like chopping wood for the stove. But by 1925, half of all homes in the U.S. were electrified, as I found out from some research I was doing. And that means that basically our entire kitchen world, our entire sense of domestic chores is only about 100 years old. Yeah. And at this point, you're right. It's it's like we can't imagine living without these gadgets. And it transformed the domestic space, it transformed how we think about the home in this really profound way that, you know, I hope we never go back. Yeah. And basically, electrification is the beginning of cutting edge technology. It's the beginning of consumer electronics in the home. And so a lot of these early devices that people had in their kitchens, like sewing machines, which came along in the 1880s, um, which you might not have in your kitchen, but you'd have in your house. And then things like refrigerators and irons, all that stuff is just completely transforming how we think of our houses. And we're still obsessed with turning our homes into these electrified palaces, except now we don't just want a machine to wash our clothes, right? We want smart homes, which are packed with automation that turns our houses kind of into domestic servants that anticipate our every need, flicking on the lights for us, playing the music we want, suggesting a healthy meal, and reminding us to move the laundry from that electric washer to the electric dryer. Yeah, and you know, I mean... I think it's interesting to think about is like that is the next stage of the kind of transformation of the domestic sphere. But also, I don't know. I don't know if anything is ever going to like just sweep me off my feet the way my dishwasher did. My dishwasher and I have this really complicated romance that like, you know, I just don't think anything other can ever replace that. You're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my latest novel is The Terraformers. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. My latest novel is 
Promises Stronger Than Darkness, the third book in a young adult space fantasy trilogy, and I'm also writing New Mutants Lethal Legion for Marvel Comics. Today we're going to talk about the dream of the smart home and how it grew out of the history of consumer electronics and a truly dramatic series of misinterpretations of science fiction stories about home automation. And later in the episode, we're going to talk about the culture of home electronics with Jackie Chang, former editor-in-chief and founder of the influential gadget guide Wirecutter. Also, on our mini-episode next week, we'll be answering your questions, which you asked in our Discord server for patrons. Speaking of our Discord server, did you know that there's this huge, like, incredibly vibrant community of our patrons on Discord? And you could be part of it. Not only that, but if you give us a few bucks or whatever you can afford on Patreon, you are helping to keep this podcast alive, helping to keep us thinking of more correct opinions, and just funding our, you know, incredible, like, super mega brain that we keep in our basement, which has only been electrified since 1922, I want to say. So it's about 100 years of electrifying our super brain. But, you know, (laughs) if you become a patron, you also get mini episodes after every single episode. And anything you give us keeps the podcast going and goes right back into making our opinions that much more correct. So please find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Let's jump into it. So, Annalie, I feel like I've always seen the smart home in science fiction. It's one of those things that's just like a trope that just turns up over and over again. But when did we first start seeing this notion of the smart home in sci-fi? It's a really good question, and it doesn't really go back as far as I thought it would. And so I think if we want to go back into a historical backstory for this idea, we have to look at fairy tales. Mm. Um, I was thinking a lot about the witch Baba Yaga and her sisters who live in a house that wanders around on chicken legs. And I love that idea of it as an early smart home, you know, like this is what the ladies want. They want a house that's like on legs. And there's also a lot of uh, modern versions of the Beauty and the Beast story, which have household implements coming to life to do chores. And so I think there's always been this appetite for magical houses that will do our work for us and care for us. But the first inkling that such a thing might be possible really comes around in the late 19th century when, as we've already been talking about, electrification starts to go mainstream and we just see this flood of electrified devices for home convenience. There's the Singer sewing machine from the 1880s, and that's quickly followed by washing machines, stoves, vacuums, refrigerators, and all kinds of other stuff that we don't even use anymore today. Yeah, and we already kind of talked about how that transformed the domestic sphere, and it was kind of the birth of consumer electronics, right? Yeah, something like that. And electric lights are a big part of this. They were really popular for obvious reasons. And there's this slow shift at the turn of the 20th century from gas-powered homes to electrified homes that really doesn't start to 
fully transformed cityscapes until the 20s and 30s when the majority of homes are electrified and the majority of streetlights are electrified. But interestingly, a lot of historians like Alfred Chandler, who wrote this influential book called Inventing the Electronic Century, they don't consider household appliances to be consumer electronics. So when they tell histories of consumer electronics, they say it starts with radio in the 1920s. So basically any gadget used by women it doesn't really count as consumer electronics because that's, you know, it's that's a manly concept. It's like gadgets. Like when we think of gadgets, we think there's kind of this weird macho framing to the term gadget, like gearhead, when you think about that. Yeah. And nobody thinks mm-hmm. like, I'm a gearhead. I work on my stove. You know? Yeah, I it's, make washing machines. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's super weird to think about how those things absolutely are consumer electronics, but we don't put them in that category because they're not macho enough. Suddenly, when do we start seeing the first fictional representations of smart homes? It's really, you know, a couple of decades after these electrified homes are coming on the market and people are buying these gadgets. And it's really reflected in sort of science fiction tinged comedy, which is really interesting. So in 1922, there's a short silent film with Buster Keaton called The Electric House. We'll link to it in the show notes. And it's funny because it's about this newfangled smart home that's electrified. And the plot here is very similar to contemporary sci-fi about the terror of smart homes. Like there's this Mr. Robot episode where the hackers take over their adversary's smart home and kind of torment her with all of these gadgets until she does what they want. And that's kind of what happens in the electric house. Buster Keaton is this hapless dork who gets hired to electrify this rich guy's house, which involves things like creating an electric bookshelf that will like take a book out for you and kind of smack you in the face with the book. But there's another electrical engineer who wanted his job and is pissed off. So once Buster Keaton has electrified the whole house with all these crazy gadgets, including an escalator, by the way, which you can imagine hilarity ensuing. So this guy sneaks in, takes over the smart home and starts making everything go haywire and you know spraying people with food and tossing them into the swimming pool. And it's played for laughs, but you can see how it easily could flip over into some of our modern fears about what happens if an evil person takes over our smart home. And then in 1936, Charlie Chaplin comes out with a movie called Modern Times, which is incredibly iconic. You've probably seen pictures of it where uh, Charlie Chaplin is caught in the gears of a giant machine. He's working on an assembly line, doing a lot of physical humor around that. And one of the truly iconic scenes in the film is when he's just having his lunch on the assembly line and this group of executives comes through the factory and they decide to test out their new home technology on Charlie Chaplin. So they strap him into this device that's going to feed him. It has robotic arms. It has a little lazy Susan that's going to spin around in front of him and the robotic arms are going to give him soup and cake and some other things that you can't even recognize. And of course, immediately it starts to go haywire, particularly when it's trying to give him corn on the cob. So it like jams the corn cob in his face and starts like smacking him and it's spinning really fast. So it's like it's almost like it's knocking his teeth out. And there's a napkin that keeps coming up and slapping him. And the scene gets increasingly frenetic because the executives don't want to let it go. And every time Charlie Chaplin is injured by this machine. They're like, oh, well, we're just going to reset it. 
So he's already had soup thrown in his face like three times and they keep resetting it and resetting it. Uh-huh. And Charlie Chaplin is more and more injured and more and more dismayed and covered in goop. And finally, at the end, the executives are like, well, I guess this just isn't practical. And I think that the thing about this scene that's so interesting and that really sets the tone for a lot of later fantasies about smart homes is that there's this sense that this poor schlub is being experimented on and that this home automation is attacking him. And this is a theme that comes up again and again as the smart home becomes kind of a nightmare scenario as the decades go by and all the way up through the present. Yeah, and you do see a lot of, like, you can see the comedy potential in this kind of thing, like the slapstickiness. And I was saying to you when we were kind of talking about this episode before, like one of the tropes in science fiction is that you know someone's a quirky inventor when they have like a Rube Goldberg machine that like they're yes. still in bed and they like nudge a thing with their foot and it makes a ball roll down a slope and knock over a thing and like then a, a thing goes around and then it like boils water and makes an egg and toast comes out and like it does all like it automatically puts breakfast on their plate but then it always goes wrong and like that's mm-hmm. kind of the humor value of it. But it's interesting that like Similar to how our first stories about robots are about robot uprisings, our first stories about smart homes and about home automation are kind of cautionary tales. They're kind of stories of it going wrong and attacking people. And then, you know, you get into the 1950s and it gets more serious. You have this Ray Bradbury story, The Velt, about a smart home that actually kills people. You have 1984, where the home entertainment system is a surveillance device. And, you know... Like, it, we we actually talked about this a lot. It's hard to find positive depictions of the smart home in classic science fiction other than, like, in the Jetsons and in kind of industrial uh-huh. kind of, like, the home of the future kind of movies that are, like, yeah. made as propaganda. And, you know, so the Jetsons is really where we get our optimism about smart homes from. Why do you think that so much of the, the science fiction about smart homes is so negative? I've been thinking about this a lot, and... I believe it has to do with all of the internal contradictions in the marketing of smart homes. So we see the smart home as an idea coalescing in the 1950s, which we talked about a lot in our Myth of Progress episode, where the electric home, which is full of domestic appliances, is being marketed by companies like Westinghouse and GE. Truly the most wonderful and exciting thing I've ever had the chance to talk about. It's the Westinghouse Total Electric Home. A home where electricity does everything. Heats, cools, illuminates, launders, preserves and prepares foods, entertains. It even lights a path to the front door with rayescent strip lighting. This is also a period where women are being pressured to return to housewife roles. So they're the main consumers of these gadgets, like washing machines and dishwashers and so forth, but they've also been forced out of the workplace. So the paradox is that we're seeing technology being manufactured for people who can't actually buy it. Right, which is why there's this huge trope in pop culture of like the wife kind of badgering her husband to buy me a new dishwasher, buy me a new blah, blah, blah. And he's like, ah, oh, honey, we can't afford it. And he, he's going out like, I guess, bowling with the guys or whatever and spending money on his bowling habit or something. Fucking bowling. His his goddamn bowling habit. I mean, and that's a stereotype that we see in a lot of fiction, including science fiction like the Jetsons. But meanwhile, 
there's this counterforce in culture where women are treating the domestic sphere as science. And that's thanks really to the popularity of home economics classes. These were developed first by Ellen Swallow Richards, who was the first woman to graduate from MIT in 1870. Wow. She was a chemist. She also was a eugenicist, so not the greatest person. But she invents this idea that women should learn science in order to be homemakers. And it's really her way of trying to carve out a place for women in science that doesn't challenge patriarchy. It's just, it's like a a weird compromise situation. And she and a lot of other women managed to make places for themselves in science departments, in university positions, and even in the federal government and a lot of state governments where they set up bureaus of home economics and pushed it as a science. And so by the mid-20th century, almost every young woman in the United States was taking home economics classes. And here's a really interesting clip I found from a 1951 movie that was made by the state of Iowa, and it was encouraging women to study home economics in college. What's chemistry like? Well, it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be. It's different. You have to get used to thinking in a new way, but I sort of liked it. And you know it applies in... In such common ordinary things as making cream of tomato soup. Pour milk into the acid tomato and you're likely to have curdled tomato soup. Pour the acid tomato slowly into cold milk and... Well, you can see that cooking is practically applied chemistry. So we're elevating the domestic sphere. We're calling it scientific, but we're also confining women in it. And like I said, there's such a strong contradiction there. We're calling women home economists. We're designing high-tech control rooms for them in their kitchens and their homes. And yet we aren't paying them for something that sounds a lot like a job. Yeah, and part of the elevation of the domestic sphere for white women who we're now calling home economists and associating with science feels like a way to distinguish them from women of color who are often working as domestic workers and whose contributions are much less highly valued and who are kind of... And it feels like that labeling of home economist and this association of science is an attempt to kind of to say that even if white women are being confined to the home again after World War II, they're still on a higher level status-wise than women of color. And it's a way of just trying to reinforce this hierarchy that's like racial as well as gender-based. Yeah, it's interesting. There are definitely examples of Black women getting college training in home economics, and we'll link to an article in the show notes that deals with that. But it is this is another one of the contradictions because women of color are being paid for domestic work, and yet they're being treated as somehow less worthy than these white women who aren't being paid. So there's, again, all these contradictions in this treatment of this high-tech domestic world. And, you know, eventually, a lot of this discontent leads to a powerful wave of feminist-influenced science fiction like The Stepford Wives, which is a novel that got made into a movie in 1975. It's totally classic. It's been remade a million times. And it's about how this domestic technology that we've been talking about is actually aimed at men. It's not something that women can buy. Men are the ones who are buying it. And it's a technology in The Stepford Wives that ultimately allows men to 
completely eliminate their wives by replacing them with devices and robots who are very compliant. Yeah, that might give us some ideas about why personal assistants in fiction and in reality so often have a female voice like like Siri. Yeah, and Alexa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a holdover from that idea. And also in the 1970s, we see even more violent and disturbing representations of smart homes hurting women. One of my favorite cult movies is Demon Seed, which comes out in 1977. And it's about a very cold and calculating man who invents an AI called Proteus that takes over his smart home and rapes his wife. Open the door, Alfred. Can you hear me? Open the door. All electrical and mechanical systems here are now under my control. She actually winds up giving birth to a cyborg at the end. So I guess her little girl is the first offspring of a human in a smart home. So it's a really horrific vision of, of smart home as rapist. And earlier, we also have Marge Piercy's 1976 novel, Woman on the Edge of Time, that also shows us this potential dystopian future. This is an interesting novel that suggests that there's a possible utopian future for women and a possible dystopian one. And the dystopian one is set in an apartment building that is a smart building. And these women spend all day long basically getting manicures from their house and being uh, turned into these uh, domestic servants who are constantly surveilled by the buildings that they're in. And like I said, these are nightmarish stories. And it's just really hard to understand why executives, why product designers decided that these would be great templates for future technologies. Yeah, and that's really what it comes down to. This feels like another area, much like the metaverse, where this is a really <laughs> dystopian idea in science fiction. It's something that is usually portrayed as dystopian and horrible. Um, and yet you have these companies trying to like turn it into reality and trying to like make it into a consumer product. And, you know, it's this dream that your home can go beyond having just a bunch of awesome gadgets into one that actually kind of becomes your main servant and replaces housewives or domestic servants or enslaved people altogether. And, you know, it feels like they try to make this into a happy thing. I feel like I don't understand the appeal of it, and it feels like there's so many ways it could go wrong. And I don't understand why it's a thing that we've been told we should want. Yeah, so to understand more about how these consumer electronics are marketed to us and why we've come to want them, we're going to talk to Jackie Ching about contemporary gadgets for the home and what exactly the modern-day smart home really is. Jackie Ching is the former editor-in-chief of the consumer gadget guide, The Wirecutter. And also, fun fact, she and I both worked at Ars Technica, though at different times, which was kind of sad. <laughs> I'm sorry I missed you there, Jackie. And currently, she's entrepreneur-in-residence at Columbia's Brown Institute for Media Innovation. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for thinking of me when uh, thinking about this topic. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are like the gadget master, the gadget, I don't know, what's the term gadget of emperor. art for this? Gadget oh. emperor, yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> sure, sure, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so we've been talking about smart homes, and I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the smart home in the tech world and in pop culture, like, how has it changed? I feel like 
you know, 10 years ago, everybody was like, smart homes, that's the next thing. And then it's sort of different now. Like, how has it changed? And what do you think it means now? So in addition to being, you know, the editor in chief at Wirecutter and Sweet Home, I um, also just personally have been a smart home nerd, like, you know, since like 95. So amazing. I, I feel like, you know, back then and in the early 2000s and whatnot, you know, there was like a certain kind of vision of smart homes where, you know, I, I feel like it was very Jetsons-like. It was mm-hmm. very like, um, you know, you'll arrive home and the lights will come on as you go from room to room. Or, um, you know, the garage door will automatically open for you and then the music will automatically start playing. That kind of stuff. And maybe, you know, a smart speaker speaking to you or a robot. Um, mm-hmm. So I do feel like some of those manifestations have you know, somewhat endured. Like we have lots of smart speakers now all over the place. But then, you know, about 10 years ago, I think things became much more modern nerdy, I would say. Like for a while, there was an obsession with X10 outlets, which was kind of like the early way to get, you know, any of your stuff sort of online in a way that you could control it um, via the internet. But Mm -hmm. that was really like deep nerd stuff. And that was really just turning things on and off, like um, lamps and whatnot. (laughs) So like you would turn, you would plug it into an X10 outlet and then you could use an app to like turn all your shit on and off. Yeah, I would, back then you'd probably write your own script (laughs) to do that. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, and then, you know, 10 years ago, it was probably all about, you know, people getting on, like setting up mesh networks and setting up a million smart lights and, you know, connected speaker systems like the Sonos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like the beginning of the the sort of drop cam, Nest Cam era. And now I, I think we're like, I think we've totally gone away from the Jetsons fantasy, except for a couple of things like the smart speakers. And we're, we've gone way into just, like, total practicality, um, you know, at least when it comes to, like, the stuff that tends to work and endure. I think mm-hmm. it's the stuff that makes your life easier. It helps you save your house from emergencies. Um, you know, maybe it does Maybe it does turn on some lights and turn them off later. Like, it's, like, I would say perhaps simpler in concept, but broader in and deeper in our lives, maybe. Like what's an what's an example of that when you say like something that's more practical? I would say so one example is smart water sensors. And this is something that has maybe that has not been smart in the way that we think of it today, but has been automated for a very long time, which is just a little sensor to detect if there is like a flood or something, um, you know, anywhere that you don't want there to a flood to be. Now <laughs> they're smart so they can do other things like send you push notifications, send you emails, but they've been around for a long time. And I think the the modern ones have been great. Like I, uh, you know, I use one at my house in the mountains because there's like a weird place that sometimes floods and it's super, super useful. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that, you know, it's very simple and it works. And I feel like that's the kind of thing you can recommend to people. In fact, like we recommended it at the wire cutter and it like you know for your grandparents for anybody like that thing is going to endure <laughs> and it and it will totally work so um that's where i feel like that's where we are now yeah i find it super fascinating that you kind of mentioned this dichotomy between like on the one hand the jetsons vision and on the other hand what you describe as being practical and i was wondering if you could speak more to that and like why 
companies were so focused on giving us this Jetsons vision rather than something that was actually geared towards meeting like a perceived need among the consumers. I think it was kind of the classic, like sort of, uh, you know, nerd fantasy building towards like the fantasy world. That was really like in the, in the Steve Jobs era, I feel like. Um, Right. And so, like, it was all about, like, you know, what we'll be able to do in the future. And, you know, it was really catering towards, like, not only wealthy people, people who had money, but also people who had, you know, kind of deeper knowledge of tech to be able to do some of those things. Now things are such, you know, so much more simplified as well, you know, in addition to being more practical, I think more, uh, you know, what some people would call regular people are using all of these things um, more commonly. So I'm wondering, in your experience consuming home gadgets, but also studying and writing about them, are there any that became really popular that totally surprised you? You know, I I wouldn't call it exactly a surprise, but I do think that, um, you know, the explosion of doorbell cameras has just been, like, insane. You know, on one hand, I kind of expected it. But on the other hand, like, I don't think I realized so many people were willing to just throw them, you know, everywhere. You know, obviously now, like, there's all these articles you read about, like, ring cameras and collaborations with, like, authorities and how people feel about that. In addition to, you know, people posting all kinds of crazy stuff on Nextdoor. So I think, uh, you know, we're facing an interesting moment where everyone has um, door cams and, you know, Nest cams everywhere. But I think that's that's one where I just don't think I realized people would adapt to that so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I'm also talking about myself. I have Nest cams everywhere, but it's partially because I want to watch my cats. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the videos that we've seen of wild animals from nest cams. Like, oh, yeah. That's like a huge part of the pleasure of having them. It's wonderful. I um, At my house in the mountains, I also get to watch for foxes all the time on my nest oh. cam. <laughs> oh, foxes. I love that. What I feel like I'm hearing here is that there's kind of, there's a category of home automation that's roughly boils out to surveillance or monitoring, like the nest cam, like the water sensing equipment you mentioned yeah, I think and then true. there's the kind that's like it'll turn on your dishwasher via an app or it'll make your toaster make toast when you're like in a you're you could be a hundred miles away and you could be like i want to make toast even though i'm not home right now yeah. and like you know i feel like one i could see the i could see the application of the 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 monitoring and surveillance side much more easily than i can the other side do you think that there's have people been, surpri- been surprised by the popularity one versus the other? Do you think that there is like a divergence there? You know, I'm not sure. I do think some people have been surprised. I'm not sure who exactly, but like maybe right. like marketers even have been surprised that people haven't taken to like smart appliances as much like um, say a smart coffee maker, which I right. have and we never, ever, ever use the smart features. <laughs> what, what makes your coffee um, maker smart? Like, Please talk me through that. Uh, so it's a, it's a, so I have a couple coffee makers. This particular one is like a, it's like a fancy Keurig. And so it can, it like connects to the Wi-Fi. And then um, when you put a pod in, it like scans the pod to figure out exactly what it is. And then it's supposed to connect and then figure out the best way to brew that specific pod and then brew it for you that way. What oh. the reality is, is that like, 
everything about every single step of this process is very, very slow. It's clunky. Half the time it can't <laughs> connect to the internet properly. Like, oh my God. And like, honestly, you don't really like given all of these annoying problems, like you don't really care if it's brewed exactly the same, like exactly perfectly for the pod. It is a Keurig after all, you know? So it's like, you kind of just give up on the whole smart thing and you just are like, go hot water. Um, and I feel like that's what a lot of people do, right? (laughs) You know, you get, you get tired of the fanciness after about a day. And I think that happens with a lot of those types of things. Um, even smart lights, which a lot of people like, they can be super laggy. Like I've used various iterations for, you know, God knows, like almost 20 years. And even today, they can be kind of laggy, maybe less laggy. But um, if you don't have any tolerance for that, if you expect to walk from room to room and have it light up like the Jetsons, like it's not going to be like that. Um, Yeah, I have a smart light in my hallway that often changes color on a whim. And it's because I have have to have a special app. It's spooky. It's It's actually very spooky. I have been spooked by that. I've been like freaked out by that on occasion when I'm at Annalise. When I'm in Annalise hallway, I get freaked out by the hallway. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's just the app is buggy. And, you know, that's that's part of the problem is that you have to have all these apps on your phone to control all of the devices in your house. The apps are awful. That's the other thing. Like the apps crash all the time. They have bad UIs. Like people don't like them. So that just makes it even more, you know, unusable. One of the things we were talking about uh, before you came on is that there's this famous history of consumer electronics by Alfred Chandler called Inventing the Electronic Century. And he completely ignores all of these domestic home devices like washing machines and irons. And he's like, electronics, consumer electronics start with radios in the 20s. <laughs> I mean, why do you think he does that? Like, why, why, is, why, are, we, why are we ignoring the sewing machine and, and, and stuff like that? Well, <laughs> I mean, my my immediate answer is, you know, it, it's a gendered view of yeah. um, consumer electronics and like automation of some things. I think that, you know, I, I actually like I am a sewer. I love to sew. So, I, you know, sewing machines are, in fact, amazing. Um, it's truly like a great invention. Um, and yet, uh, you're right. Why have we always, even still now, we mostly ignore it, except for a kind of like when people talk about the fancy like embroidery machines that have computers on them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's literally the only time like men will ever talk to me about a uh, sewing machine, by the way, if, if there's like a computer in it. Um, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, but I have a CAD program that <laughs> right. helps me sew. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, I think there's a seriously gendered view there. And I think that has endured. I think, you know, today, luckily, things are significantly different, but I wouldn't say it's totally gone. And I think that's totally why. Like, I think we just view women's uh, work and hobbies as kind of minimal. And so they are not serious. They're not like machines, you know, um, not like a radio, apparently. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the product design process should be different for, you know, home electronics and like domestic devices than for like computers or smartphones? Do you think that companies should approach that differently? Well, I mean, my perspective when I was at the head of Wirecutter and Sweet Home was that was no, that I feel like that only helps you get deeper into this weird gendered space. Right. That doesn't doesn't really help anybody. So I kind of feel like it's like everyone has to take a big step back and you're just designing for 
a person who is not an expert in that thing. I mean, and that's how we always tried to view things at Wirecutter and Sweet Home as well, which is just that, like, can someone who's just a regular person, who's like, you know, a regular smart person like all of us, you know, can they just sit down and start using this? And, you know, that's where we would start. I think companies could really benefit from doing that, especially the ones who make actually like the more techie stuff, the things that are maybe seen as more male. I, I feel like I often have to walk other family members through those uh, even more because they can be complicated. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just think it would benefit everybody if uh, if we would just kind of view everyone kind of on a flat plane, at least to start, and just kind of approach it from a user-centered point of view. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the Wirecutter smart home division because Wirecutter was a gadget guide or is a gadget guide. And then you spun off the sweet home to talk about kind of home technologies. And I wonder when you were conceiving of that split, which I know they've now merged back together, but when you were thinking about the two, like how would you decide what was a Wirecutter gadget and what was a sweet home gadget? So it's interesting that you asked that question that way because I don't really see it that way. <laughs> but yeah. I see I see Wirecutter having launched first. And at that time, there was like the plan to launch Sweet Home as a separate vertical. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian Lamb, who is our founder, he came from like the Gizmodo Empire and uh, Gawker, et cetera. And so they like did I'm a lot familiar. of- familiar. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so- uh, Yeah, Brian was my boss. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. And so like, you know, there's a lot of verticals there. So I feel like at that time, uh, we were just kind of thinking in that mindset. And, you know, to be totally honest with you, I always kind of felt a little bit like it was gendered from the beginning, but I don't know if I would have said that back then. I think I just like wasn't, you know, kind of just felt a little weird, but it wasn't exactly like clear why. And I think Brian just felt like it was easier, you know, when it came to advertisers, et cetera, you know, to have these verticals. And so I think we all just were like, let's just do it because we wanted to do the content, you know, and not worry about the details (laughs) of that stuff so much. Um, But I think once we started getting going, you know, it was I, it was difficult to decide sometimes um, how to split things up. In the beginning, Sweet Home was pretty much all home home stuff. And so it, we would almost say it was like home and garden, but it was also like home and garden and garage, home and garden and garage and lawn. Um, <laughs> you know, it starts like, expanding. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, Wirecutter is like electronics, but not home. And so mm-hmm. as as we're kind of coming to in this episode here, like the home is becoming a smart home naturally, I think out of practicality. And so eventually kind of it just became more and more difficult because we were like, well, does this piece that we've produced belong on this site or this site? And we'd be like, well, should we cross-post it? And then next thing you know, we're cross-posting a lot of things, like most of them. (laughs) And so so I think that's what led to us bringing them back together, or together from my perspective for the first time, um, mostly just because it made more sense that way, because I felt like you almost had to think of it as a in a gendered way in order to decide on which site mm-hmm. to put it on. And I'm not saying that that, like, nobody stated that, by the way. Like, nobody ever told me to do that. I never told anyone to do that. I'm just saying, like, that's kind of like the pervasive attitude. And it just didn't feel right. So, uh, you know, I think 
I think there's a lot of things that we miss like about Sweet Home. I had an awesome team there and they all like ended up working at Wirecutter, but um, I thought it was the right decision. Yeah, I think so too. Because as you're talking, I'm like, well, where does a ring camera fit? That's yeah, for the right. home, you know. <laughs> it, you know, it's like it's domestic, but it's also. I feel like techy. we would probably have like an 18 hour debate about that, as well as like Roombas, and you know, 10 million other things. So. <laughs> <laughs> So I liked how there was that phase with Roombas where people were hacking them to put like giant sharp spikes on them and make them fight each other just to make sure they were really manly. <laughs> I feel like I just learned that people are still doing that. Oh, so, okay. So there I, you I go. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. People are still doing it. That's cool. <laughs> Fighting Roombas. Yeah. Um, I wanted to finish up by asking you if um, there's any science fiction stories out there that you wish would inspire more smart home design. Like we talked about the Jetsons being kind of bankrupt as a, a source of ideas. Oh, man. I don't, you know, that's a good question because I tend to get into really dystopian, like science fiction. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure. What do you think? Like I would actually I mean, turn that I back actually, on you. I have a, a question about that, which is, I mean, do you have any ideas about why so much sci-fi about smart homes is dystopian? Because that's we've just been talking about how there's all of these really dark stories about smart homes. And we keep wondering, <laughs> why did Silicon Valley decide that that was a template for product development? <laughs> you know, I like it's kind of weird, but I somewhat suspect that it's like a play on like the poltergeist thing ah. where it's like it's like kind of like a ghost is controlling your house. But even worse, it's like it's like a hacker <laughs> or something. A hacker ghost. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm sort of just making that up, but I feel like that's the vibe they're going for, which is sort of like it's creepy. You don't know who's like messing with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> But then how do we make it desirable, like, as as an entrepreneur or as a product designer? Like, what do you think is happening, like, in those rooms where people are coming up with ideas where they're like, wow, I saw this really fucked up thing on, like, you know, um, whatever. Black Mirror. Black Mr. Mirror, Robot. exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I just, um, I mean, who knows, right? It's a complicated question, and we don't have the answer. That's why I was just curious. Is like, because... We see things like Black Mirror showing us the dark side of smart home technology. And so I'm just wondering if you have a sense of, yeah, what happens when people are coming up with ideas for these products that we've seen so many negative stories about? Like, how how are people, product designers or entrepreneurs, thinking about it when they're like, oh, we're going to try to market something that people have really only seen negative images of? You know, I often wonder this myself, <laughs> but I don't know. I, you know, honestly, I wish they would take that a little more into account and take people's real experience, experiences more into account. I think that a lot of product developers and marketers really lean into what excited them about creating the product in the first place, which is fine. You know, I think we're all for enthusiasm um, and excitement and getting, you know, hyped up for your thing. But I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of stories, for example, about like internet stalking and, you know, stalking from abusive partners and like spying on you from both partners and hackers. And so like, this tends to disproportionately affect women and people of color. And so like that kind of thing always 
tends to be like thought of, you know, 10 million steps later, like way after release and like years Mm -hmm. after people have been complaining. You know, I, I feel like they should consider more of like the real lives of people when they're in these rooms and instead of just the enthusiasm for why they created it. I feel like a lot of these very well-meaning people are just, you know, hype hype nerds just like us. And they, <laughs> you know, they're like, I want to spy on the animals outside. I want to see who is ringing my doorbell. Like, it's going to be awesome. And then, like, you don't really think about, like, what is the experience of another person um, un- unless you have those people in the room or you're explicitly, you know, going down a list and thinking about these people. And I think they should be. <laughs> so... In a way, I wish they would consider some of these negative experiences in that they should consider, uh, like, if they're seeing it in Hollywood, they should just be like, okay, like, why is this scaring people? Like, (laughs) what is the thing that scares people about this? And how can we, you know, address it? How can we, like, address that fear? I feel like, you know, some companies are beginning to finally address privacy issues and various, uh, various encryption connections. And so you know, these things are moving slowly, but I feel like, I just feel like companies could really take into account what people's real fears. Yeah, that's really good point. And I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about all this stuff. Is there any place that um, listeners can find your work online? Oh, boy, I'm I'm hiding online right now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, then we don't have to say that. Yeah. But no, my, uh, my website is digitalmeow.com. And um, it generally just has what I'm go- what I'm doing there, so you can usually find my contact info there as well. I'm mentoring and whatnot, so feel free to ping me wherever, and um, I'll be happy to respond. Cool! Yay! Thank you All so right. much. After the break, we're gonna finish up by talking about why Silicon Valley keeps screwing up smart homes. <laughs> So, I mean, Jackie kind of talked about how 10 years ago, there was this idea of the smart home as this like amazing thing that was going to transform your life. It was like endless amounts of hype from Silicon Valley. What if someone or something were watching you in your home, silently, secretly observing your every move, knowing what you do, when you do it, and the moment you walk out your door? That's the idea behind smart homes, which watch how you live and try to make your life easier. I mean, those were the days when you heard a lot of discussions about the Internet of Things, the idea that your refrigerator will be on the Internet and it will alert you when you're low on milk. Your stove will be on the Internet. It'll talk to your fridge about what you can make for dinner. You'd control your entire home from an app. Coates, a blogger and web entrepreneur, has raked his small San Francisco home with a handful of sensors that let him know, through his home's own Twitter feed, what's happening when he's not there. And at the same time, there was so much science fiction like 10 years ago where people had a home assistant that was like alive and sentient. Like Iron Man had Jarvis, who was like a smart home, basically. And there was the movie Her with Scarlett Johansson as like a basically a smart home digital assistant. And then there was the show Eureka, where there was a smart home that fell in love with an android sheriff. And it was a really sweet love story, but it was also super weird, but it also made the smart home look glamorous and awesome for the first time. 
Yeah, I definitely think there's something to be said for this idea that smart homes and romance kind of go together. Um, A lot of people talk about being in love with aspects of their smart homes or, you know, as we heard in the clip, having a chatty relationship with your home. And I think that there's a corollary to this right now in science fiction, which is that we've had a lot of stories about falling in love with spaceships. Becky Chambers has this in her work. Right. And Aliette de Bodard's uh, new novel, The Red Scholar's Wake, is all about uh, a spaceship and a human having a romance. And I think this is proof that we're still dreaming about having a perfect smart home, in this case, a spaceship, that cares for us and cleans our clothes and keeps us safe. But the reality is we are as far away from having something like that as we are from having sentient spaceships. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like where the rubber hits the road is when you get something like Alexa from Amazon, which was a really underwhelming product that failed horribly. But yeah, like Alexa was just this huge thing 10 years ago. Everyone thought it was going to revolutionize our worlds. But now you can see why people wound up being really disenchanted with them. There's been a ton of discoveries over the years that personal assistants like Alexa and also Google Nest are listening even when they're supposedly turned off. I've experienced that personally. We have a Google uh, Nest device. We have a Google Hub. And sometimes will say something and it'll wake up and just respond like it thinks it's heard Yeesh. the word Google and it, it'll be like, I don't know that. And <laughs> um, we've also recently learned that people who were beta testing Roombas, those little disc-shaped autonomous vacuums, uh, now they now have cameras on them. And people who were beta testing them were being filmed. And last year, it was revealed that techs at the company were sharing videos of people sitting on the toilet. And oh, my God. Here's um, Washington Post tech columnist Jeffrey Fowler talking about how he discovered that Alexa was recording even when it was supposedly off back in 2019. Here's an idea for Amazon. Don't record us by default. Eavesdropping is an invasion, and Amazon is putting its profit over our privacy. It's also a sign of a bold data grab that's going on in our increasingly connected homes. Yeah, I mean, this is where the fact that a lot of smart home technology kind of revolves around surveillance turns it into something that can easily just be an invasion of privacy and kind of make your home feel more unsafe and, you know, more like invaded by, you know, big, big data in a way. And people on the other end who are swapping your (laughs) embarrassing home videos. Honestly, I really feel like Charlie Chaplin got it right in modern times. You know, home automation is more likely to attack you or spy on you or screw up your life than it is to make things easier. And if you add to that the pernicious ways that smart homes have historically been used to marginalize women while pretending to cater to them. And I think we should just be wary of anyone trying to sell us automated homes of the future. You have been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for being here. Remember that you can find us on Mastodon at Our Opinions at Wandering Shop. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. And we're on TikTok and Instagram as Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much to our amazing, intrepid producer, Veronica Simonetti. Thank you to Chris Palmer for the new music that you're hearing. Yay! And for the old music. And we'll talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye! Bye.